Thank you for the, the, your precious word, Lord. Tonight, God, we want to approach your word humbly. We want it to speak truth to us. Father, guard our hearts from taking what we believe to be truth and reading it into your word. We don't want to do that. We want to approach your word with humility. We want to preserve the truth of your word and we want it to minister to our hearts. That is the power of truth. Truth sets prisoners free. Truth speaks liberation and sanctifies. God, do this tonight. Speak truth over us tonight. Give us humbled hearts, Lord, that we would learn from your spirit and we would truly understand your word, not with what we bring to the text, but what you are speaking by your spirit through the text. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So why am I praying the way I am? Um, I would imagine that most of you, if not all of you, know the the, the answer to that question is because whenever we have a systematized theology, and if you go to seminary, you have to take a class called Systematic Theology. And it's usually a year long, if not longer in some seminaries. But you go through theology systematically, thus systematic theology. That, in essence, is what we are doing as we go through this class. It is a systematized study of theology. The problem, though, is that we can have a tendency within ourselves to view a a topic a certain way, and we bring a bias to the text of Scripture. I would venture to say, and I include myself when I say this, that there are certain doctrines in which we all do that. We do it. We don't mean to, we don't want to, but we have understood a passage a certain way and we just can't see it any other way. I have been down that road and then come to realize that I personally believed my first view was mistaken. And this is even after being a pastor. This is after studying theology for many, many years. Now, the, text that we're, the, the topic that we're going to look at tonight is a continuation of our last class um, when we looked at the eternal securist view, and forgive me if you don't like that term, I don't want to say Calvinist because not all people who embrace eternal security are Calvinists. But Calvin certainly did. It's found in his P and Tulip, Perseverance of the Saints. But I don't want to characterize this view as a Calvinist view, so I'm going to call it the eternal securist view as I did last time. Uh, I held to the eternal securist view from age 14 to age 30. As I studied it and studied it, and, and honestly, I had a bias when I would come to Scripture, and especially, and this is my personal confession, and I realized that obviously not all eternal securists have this, per, have this particular take. If they did, they'd change their minds. But I, when I would sit down and go through the book of Hebrews, chapters 3, 6, and 10, in, those 6 and 10 in particular, I would sit down and with my eternal securist glasses... I would read those texts and they would, they would seem to be saying something other than what I believed. And so I, I felt an internal frustration. I, I felt like when I was interpreting these, those texts from my eternal secures perspective, I was doing scripture and injustice. Now, you can't be a fair Christian and hold 
and, and allowed that um, sense of injustice to remain. So after I would study it for a while, I would say, okay, I've convinced myself again. And after you do that about a hundred times, literally a hundred times, it got old. And, and again, this is my personal testimony here. I realized that I needed to step back as best as I could and abandon any view of this, this concept of the possibility of apostasy or eternal security. Which one is it? Just totally step back and as much as I possibly could have no view at all. And then read through the book of Hebrews. And I want to tell you, that was probably the hardest thing that I have ever done when it comes to studying scripture. There was, there was that strong tense. So I would go back and I would read it again. And when I say read, I don't mean just read, I mean study. And then I would go back and I would study it again. And now here's what I found. As I, as, again, my personal testimony is I humbled myself before the word of God. I said, God, please, I'm desperate here. I truly want to know the truth. I've looked at all of these terms. I can quote those verses. I've been in debates with people on this issue from an eternal securist position. But I, I, I don't want to take that position and read it into the book of Hebrews. Please spare me this. Grant me sufficient humility so that as I read through this, I will allow your word to speak and I will not, excuse me if this sounds offensive to you, I will not muffle it any longer with my bias. Um, that was hard. I would say after several times, as I finally just sat down, because I wanted to read it in context, as I sat down with specifically chapters 6 and 10, and I began to be as fair as I could, I began to have a different view. And here's what I discovered. The book of Hebrew has at its core theme the possibility of apostasy. It's not just an isolated passage, chapter 6, chapter 10. This is the theme. And as I realized this, and I'm going to encourage you to do this as well, as you, after this class, as you begin to broaden your personal study on this topic, and especially as it's found in Hebrews, to seek to understand how the author of Hebrews uses words and phrases. See, my mistake was I would come across this word enlightened, and we're going to talk about that in Hebrews 6, and I would run to all of the verses in the Bible that could possibly be interpreted that an unbeliever was enlightened, like John 1, I believe it's verse 6, that Christ came into the world and he came to... Uh, bring light to all men. And it's the same root word uh, for enlighten. We're going to get to that, as I say, in a moment. And I would do this, and then I would take what John has to say, and even though it's a, a, a verb rather than a participle, I would take it and I would say, see, this is what Hebrews is saying. See, unbelievers can be enlightened. And I would do this throughout those two passages. And I had to step back and I had to say, stop. What does the author of Hebrews mean? By this word. And that is going to be my resounding chorus throughout this time together tonight. What does the author mean? Regardless of what Paul means, and sometimes we don't have a lot of evidence in Hebrews and we need to look elsewhere, and we should. That's our second step. But we start with Hebrews. First, we start with the context. Then we start with the entire book of Hebrews. Then we take in the entire scope of the New Testament. So that's going to be our 
hermeneutic tonight. That's going to be one principle that we need to apply here tonight so that we can walk away with a clear understanding. So let's do that. And again, uh, I did tell you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And there are two verses I want us to look at. The, the, the setting for Hebrews 3 is a passage from Psalm 95 that begins, Today, if you hear his voice, in verse 7, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. He then talks about those who did not believe and therefore did not enter the promised land. What does he, what is his point with this? Because that is the crooks, that is the core centerpiece of chapter 3. Well, he begins in, in verse 6 by saying this, and, and I'm kind of jumping, well, let's be in the beginning, okay. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and hope of which we boast. So if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast, we are his house. And so as an eternal securist, I would say, you know what? You know, the two go hand in glove. Um, I, I hold this with, I, I am part of his house, and therefore, consequently, I will hold on to my courage and hope in Christ. And it is, a, it, it is an inevitable consequence. Because I'm a part of his house, I will hold on with courage and confidence, with, with courage I will hold on to my courage and the hope that I have in Christ. But I want us to look at something here. Is that really what he is saying? He does say if. That means it's conditional. We need to allow that condition to exist. And this is what we are going to find within the eternal securist view. We will find this idea of if we hold on then we will gain eternal life, etc. We will, um, we, we, we will continue, we, we will be a part of his house, as it says here. And this is conditional. It is not a condition or a, or a hypothetical situation that's impossible. If I jump off the Empire State Building, I will never die. That is a hypothetical situation, but it's also impossible. Okay? If you jump off the Empire State Building, you will die. I promise, according to the laws of gravity, you will die. Okay? Um, you cannot promise somebody that if you jump off the Empire State Building, you will never die. You cannot give someone that promise. But such a promise is inherent in the eternal securest view. Not that if you jump off the Empire State, you know what I mean. They say that these if clauses, and we see them several times in Scripture, and we're going to conclude with one in Romans 11, that if you hold on, if is a hypothetical, but it, we have to understand that it is possible, that word if means that it is certainly possible that you may not. So let me, let, let me explain it this way. He, by saying, and we are his house, he's, that word are is the present continuous action. 
We are and will continue to be his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Now, can I ask you, does that help make a little bit more sense? If we are and continue to be, that is the, that is the sense of the present tense here. If we are and continue to be, because it's continuous action. If we are and continue to be his house, no, we are and continue to be his house if we hold on. So if we don't hold on, then it's clear that we will no longer be his house. Now, do you see that? We will not continue to be his house. We see a similar understanding in verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. So if we hold the confidence we had at first, then that means we have come to share in Christ. Isn't that a little bit of an awkward way of saying that? We have come. And so the, 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 the eternal securist would say, see, there is this sense of confidence. We have come. Perseverance is the fruit of a true believer. Again, present continuous action, or, or it's, the, it's the continuous action that's emphasized here, meaning we have come and will continue to be sharers in Christ if we hold firmly to the end. So I, I, I'm saying this because from the get-go in chapter 3, there is this hypothetical situation if you do not continue to persevere to the end, then this will happen to you. And so the challenge is, church, persevere. Not, I'm going to challenge you to persevere, but understand that God's promise is for the believer that they will persevere. See, that's a hypothetical impossibility. If I'm going to say that you cannot fall away, why challenge somebody to make sure they don't fall away? If it's inevitable that you will persevere, why tell people to persevere? That's the tension that lies within the eternal securist view. And that's the tension that chapter 3 opens up with as it moves through this book to challenge the believers to persevere. All right, now, as we move to chapter 6, I want, I'm going to read only verses 4 through 9. I'm going to come back to a, a few things in, in verses 1 through 3. But if you could pull out your piece of paper on Hebrews 6, 4 through 9, I'm going to read to you verses 4, four through 9. The first word actually is... Um, if, excuse me, for, it is impossible. And I emphasize that because I'm going to explain later it's connected to verses 1 through 3. So let me read it with that word for. For it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back or to be renewed to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God 
all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. I want to pause for just a moment there. Does it not seem clear at this point that there is this possibility of apostasy if they fall away? We would have to say yes. So as an eternal securist, I had to somehow understand this in a way, and I'm just going to put it out there, that is unnatural for the text. Because, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the early church, some, and again, some, did not want to place the book of Hebrews in the canon because it clearly taught the possibility of apostasy. And they did not believe that there were other scriptures in the New Testament that taught that. And so there were some within the church that did not want the book of Hebrews a part of the canon for this reason. Um, and, and I say that because if we're honest, there is this sense of inevitability of what it's saying that if you fall away and that it is a possibility for a Christian. Now let me continue. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. I want us to, as you see here, there are several points that I'm going to make. There's a total, actually, of five, and then there are subpoints. But within this first one, if they fall away to be brought back or to be renewed to repentance, what is the nature of this repentance? Now, those who hold to an eternal securist view would say that the nature of this repentance is a false repentance. And the reason why they say that is because to be brought back or to be renewed means that you had once experienced repentance. Okay, And so if I had at one point repented, gone back into a sinful lifestyle, he is saying that I, under certain conditions... I will not be able to be brought back to this repentance that I had once experienced. That's the concept between brought back or renewed to repentance. Now, do you see this? That this repentance is something that these people had already experienced. Whatever group of people, nominal Christians or true believers. Now, someone in my position, I I do believe that the author is referring to true believers, but the eternal securist position says they're nominal believers that he's speaking to. He's kind of calling them out. You know, you had kind of tasted here and there and you really hadn't truly experienced so that if you fall away, that is, if you go back into your sinful lifestyle, you can't be brought back to repentance. And the question then is what type of repentance the eternal securist must view this repentance as a false repentance. Because it, rep- it, it cannot be true repentance. Because a nominal believer has never experienced true repentance. So do you understand this then? All right? No, d- okay, but don't shake your heads if you, if you truly don't understand. If you don't understand, because I can repeat that, I can, just raise your hand. Um, okay, so 
He is, he, because he's saying renewed or brought back to repentance, that means that these people that he has just described had experienced repentance before. Okay? Otherwise, he would, he would say you can't be brought to repentance, not brought back to repentance. So they had to have experienced repentance before. Do you see that? The question then is what kind of repentance? A false Repentance, a, um, a surfacey or superficial repentance that's not genuine? Or is it a true repentance? If it's true repentance, then he's speaking to a group of people who are saved. Do you see that? If, it's a, if, if I'm holding to an eternal securist view that these are nominal Christians who have never experienced genuine repentance, I am saying that these groups of people cannot be brought back to a lack of genuine repentance. Now, I realize that doesn't make sense, but that is, what they, that is how they view this. That this repentance is not a genuine repentance. And they point to chapter chapter 10, verse, what do I have down here? 17. And this is where, and it's a difficult passage to even translate. It, is it Esau that's repenting or, can't rep- or doesn't repent? Or is it his dad Jacob that doesn't repent? Even though Esau seeks the blessing with tears? There's, there's no change of mind. And so the... Eternal Securist would say, see, this repentance lacks depth. It doesn't touch the heart. It only touches the mind. That the repentance is only a change of mind and not a change of heart. This is the Greek word metanoia. Okay, Kate? Um, I'm not finding that verse in Hebrews 10.17. You know what? I wonder if it's 10.13. Hebrews... I'm sorry, no wonder. It's 1217. Thank you. Yeah, so if you could make that correction, it's 1217. And so they would say, well, the author of Hebrews now defines repentance as just a change of mind, not a change of heart. And therefore, it lacks genuineness. Okay. Well, let's, let's be fair to the text. How are we going to understand this repentance? Is it genuine repentance or is it not? He already, he already tells us, actually, in this context, what he means by the word repentance. Go back to verses 1 and 2. He lays out for us six elementary teachings of Christ. The first one is repentance from dead works. The second is faith in God. These are for true believers. These are not teachings of Christ uh, for nominal believers. If you're going to be a true believer, let me give you six things that you need to know. Number one, you need to know repentance from dead works. You need to know faith in God. So he already defines for us what repentance is. It is a true change of heart that repents of dead works. 
Because these are elementary teachings of Christ. Okay? Um, so, the, the other argument from the eternal securist view is that repentance stands alone. It doesn't say repentance unto salvation or repentance unto eternal life. But may I remind you that this word repent or repentance often stands alone in the New Testament and everybody understands that it means repent and turn to God or repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he doesn't just mean change your mind and not change your heart. There's a clear understanding when this word stands alone that it includes a heart issue. So this word repentance stands alone in verse 4 but we're told what it means in verse 1 repentance from acts that lead to death or dead or dead works and for that reason i read in verse 4 because in the niv it's not there the word for very beginning of verse 4 for it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened that word for means because I want to move on to maturity. And I want you to know, based on this, that it is impossible for those, and I'm going I'm to put my interpretation, it is impossible for those who have truly been born again, that if they fall away, to be brought back to true repentance. And so, what we find here in in this passage, is this word repentance and the entire passage hinges on our understanding of repentance. Let me also tell you, if we understand this to be anything but genuine repentance, what we, and that the audience that he is describing as once being enlightened, shares in the Holy Spirit and so on, if they are just nominal believers... Here's what the author of Hebrews is actually saying to these unregenerated nominal Christians. That if you have kind of cleaned up your act a little bit, but then you go back into your sin, you will never be brought back to this unfruitful, dead repentance that you once experienced. I truly don't think that the author of Hebrews is in any way concerned about anything but genuine repentance. Why would I be concerned for a nominal Christian to be brought back to a lack of genuine repentance? Why would I even want a nominal Christian to experience this, this dead repentance that is, that is of the mind and not the heart? I would never be concerned about that. Actually, I would want them to experience true, genuine repentance. That would be my concern. So even the text itself screams to us that this word repentance is a genuine repentance and that the author truly would not be concerned about people who have cleaned up their act on the outside and they have repented of sin, but not truly, why would I be concerned about them being renewed to that type of dead repentance? I wouldn't. Okay? What I want to do right now is go to 
let me, I, I, I hope this isn't confusing, what I'm about to say. Because I realize this is, this is a deep passage. It is a long sentence, verses 4 through 6. And so, if we, if we somehow, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to get into that. Because, yeah, I, I don't even want to get into that. Um, this repentance, then, I think we have to say is a genuine repentance that only true born-again Christians can experience. Now, we could just say case closed at this point. He has to mean this. But I want us to be fair, and I want us to look at these five different descriptions of a Christian. So let's do that. The first thing he says is being enlightened. Now, if we were to turn to chapter 10, verse 32, let's do that. This is, he, he uses this term twice as a participle. Now, a participle um, is being enlightened. Okay, that would be a participle. Um, once having been enlightened, okay? It is, this verb is used twice in the book of Hebrews, once we just read, and now here in chapter 10, verse 32. So if we're going to, if we want to understand how the author of Hebrews understands being enlightened, let's look here. Verse 32, remember those early days after you had received the light. That means been enlightened. That's the, if you have an NASB, that's how they would translate it. When you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison you, and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Is he speaking to a group of Christians or is he speaking to a bunch of people? Some of them are Christians and some of them are, non, are nominal Christians. Which of those two ideas? Just Christians here or to a group who includes Christians and nominal Christians? It has to be just Christians. They're, they're, he is not addressing nominal Christianity in any way. And so these, these are Christians, and they had been enlightened. So the author of Hebrews understands this idea of being enlightened as far as the illumination of the Spirit, such as we find in Ephesians 1, I believe it's verse 18. Once being enlightened, or, or having been enlightened, um, and... <coughs> This is something that is done by the Spirit. And the Spirit does not do that with an unbeliever. This, their eyes are opened. They understand the truth. They embrace the truth. That is what it means to once be enlightened. So again, the author of Hebrews already tells us what he means by this phrase, once been enlightened. How about the next one? Tasting of the heavenly gift. Uh, there's some debate as far as what kind of heavenly gift this is. I think in all fairness, we would have to say it's not the Holy Spirit because that would mean that what he has to say about the Holy Spirit in the next phrase is redundant. 
And I don't think our author of the book of Hebrews is, is going to be redundant. He's inspired by the Spirit. So it, it may mean God's grace, God's salvation, eternal life. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, concerning the heavenly calling that these brothers share with one another. Uh, but perhaps more important is this idea of tasting. Now, when I held to an eternal securist view, that was a word that I would just jump on. See, they're just simply tasting, they're sipping, they're nibbling, they're experimenting, they're toe dipping. What other word might you be able to use? They're just, they're just simply tasting like on the tip of their tongue. They're not fully experiencing it. That was my take because of this word taste. Okay? Now, used literally like to taste wine, this is something that is used to mean just a sip when it's used literally by Jesus on the cross. Wine mixed with myrrh, gall. And it was, a, it was dead in the pain, and so once he tasted it, he rejected it. And so, from the eternal securist position, they get a lot of mileage out of that verse. See, Jesus just tasted it. But here is my challenge to you. Study the scriptures because it's not just used literally, it's used figuratively and obviously it's used figuratively here. Are you you literally tasting the heavenly gift? No, it's it's a metaphor. It's, It's figurative language. When this word is used figuratively, In the New Testament, it always means to fully experience. Let me say that again. As it's used literally, there are times, times, not all the time, times in which it can be understood to mean a sip or a partial taking in. But when it's used figuratively, it always, and there are no exceptions to this, it is always used to mean fully experience. Five times um, it refers to death. Twice it's used in this verse. And then one time concerning experiencing the goodness of the Lord. First Peter 2, 3. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Is Peter really telling them to just simply take a sip of the goodness of God? Or is he telling them to fully experience the goodness of God? You fully experience it. Taste the difference. There you go. Taste the rainbow. You can't just, it's not just a little taste that he's inviting them to. So this word taste means to, to savor and to fully experience whatever it is. Death or the goodness of God. I, I want to take you now to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. Because here's an example of how it's used to refer to death. Specifically, Jesus' death. And in verse 9, it says, But we see Jesus, who was once made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, this is what I learned many, many years ago when I held to the eternal securist view that Jesus is simply, because he was resurrected on the third day, he merely sipped 
death. Meaning, it was just a partial experience. I have to say, wait, 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 back the truck up here. Are we trying to say then that Jesus did not fully experience death? Can I add that the resurrection, as real and valuable a truth as that is, is not found in this chapter. His focus isn't that he was just dead for a little while, but he rose from the dead, just so you know, and therefore I need to use the word taste because it was only for a really, really, really short time that he, that he was dead. That is not the author's intent at all. He wants us to know Jesus fully experienced death as we experience death, and therefore by him experiencing the very death that we experience, he can rescue us from it. And we do not need to have a fear of death. Okay? So I'm going to propose to you, Jesus' resurrection is not in view here. It is solely his death and his fully experience. Jesus didn't partially die. That theory of Jesus swooning on the cross is an old theory. It's tired and worn out. People realize that it has no gusto. And, and are we really trying to say Jesus only sipped death? No. He fully experienced death. Death for everyone. Do, do you have a question? Because I was just kind of saying, if, if you only partially experience death, how can you be a full sacrifice? And um, sure, how exactly. Can you be a complete uh, redemption. Right. How is that possible? The sacrifice had to fully experience death. Right. He couldn't partially experience it. He couldn't sip it, toe dip, whatever other term you want to use. He had to fully. So. Here is my proposal to you. This word taste, every single time it's used figuratively, and it's six times used figuratively in the New Testament, every time, excuse me, eight times, it always means fully experience. And this, chapter six, is no exception. Twice it uses it. So let me read it this way to you. So it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have fully experienced the heavenly gift. And later it says, who have fully experienced the goodness of the word of God and fully experienced the powers of the coming age. Once we understand it that way, fully experienced, is there any way that a nominal Christian can fully experience any of these awesome truths? And these are inheritances, by the way that believers possess in Christ? No. So, the the next thing we want to see here is becoming sharers of the Holy Spirit. This word sharers, metakos, it's used six times in the New Testament. Five of these six times are in the book of Hebrews. So we should have a pretty good idea as far as what this means And could it possibly mean to simply share partially? Okay, well, let's find out. Because if they only shared partially in the Holy Spirit, okay, it wasn't a full experience. They didn't fully possess the Spirit. Okay, they they were just, they kind of just experienced the blessings of the Spirit. Like when people gather together in the church service 
and there, a, a sermon really encourages people and God speaks through that message or a prophetic word and it encourages, that is something that the Holy Spirit has spoken through and now it can minister to us and they can be a recipient of that encouragement and therefore share in the Holy Spirit. But is that really what he is getting at here? So as we look at how the author of Hebrews uses this word in Hebrews 1.9, Jesus shared in humanity with his brothers. Jesus didn't partially share. I mean, that was, that was a heresy back in the early church, that Jesus only partially was human, or that one nature was human, the other, his other half was divine. And therefore, there was this dichotomy within Jesus. His body was flesh and his spirit was divine. And, and they thought maybe that would explain you know, the, the intricacies of the divine becoming human. And it didn't. And it was identified as, as a heresy or at least a lack of understanding of the true nature of Jesus. Jesus shared in our humanity, meaning that he possessed and experienced our humanity. Okay? Chapter 3, verse 1. They have shared with other brothers a heavenly calling. It doesn't mean that they kind of tasted or partially experienced. No, they possessed it and they experienced it. Brothers. And, and that's how chapter 3 verse 1 reads. Chapter 3 verse 14. They have shared Christ. He's not saying that they have partially shared. No, they have shared in Christ, meaning that they have possessed and experienced Christ. Chapter 12, verse 8. They are true sons because they have shared in the discipline of the Father. There's nothing partial about this. They have, they have possessed this. It is their lot. This discipline is theirs. If, if, if it weren't, then they were not true sons. Because they're true sons, they have possessed and experienced the true discipline of their heavenly father. So there's nothing partial about this sharing. It's not a sipping or tasting or toe dipping. It's not a partial experience. It's not being in a group of believers and though you're an unbeliever, somehow reaping benefits from the Holy Spirit. No. They've been fully immersed in the Spirit. Now, can I say that here in Hebrews 6, 4, we must understand this word share to mean possess and experience the Spirit, okay? Notice how this is worded. It doesn't say that, uh, that they have shared in the blessings of the Holy Spirit. What a significance this is. I want you to see this. They have shared in the Spirit. Not the blessings of the Spirit. That's not what he's saying. They have fully experienced and possessed the Holy Spirit. The sharing is not a partial because you're, you're experiencing and possessing not the blessings of the Spirit that could fall upon a community, some of which would be believers and unbelievers. He's not talking about the blessings of the Spirit here. He's talking about the person of the Spirit. You've shared in the person of the Spirit. Vast difference. 
Unbelievers can taste the blessings of the Spirit by just going into a church service, but they cannot, apart from repentance and true belief, they cannot be sharers in the person of the Spirit. Okay? Let's go on, and and we've come across this word tasting, so I'm not going to repeat that, but this next phrase uh, says, and that they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Or the good word of God. And again, they have experienced its goodness. And I want to ask you this very simple question. Can an unbeliever experience the goodness of the word of God? And I would venture to say that this is a blessing. This is part of the inheritance that is given only to believers. This full experience, this tasting of the, the goodness of God's word can only be done by true believers. And then lastly, um, the word tasting is implied in this next phrase, phrase, tasting the powers of the coming age. Now I want you to listen to this. An argument is put forth. This power, which is the Greek word dunamis, we get our English word dynamite. I've walked you through that word before. We've come across it before. It is many times translated miracles or miraculous powers in the New Testament. Fair enough. It, it does this actually in chapter 2, verse 4. So let's go ahead and turn there. Chapter 2, verse 4. This word dunamis, or a, a declension of it, we find in verse 4 where it says, God also tested God also tested to it, testified, thank you. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various dunamis, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The powers of the coming age. Let me substitute the word miracles, miracles of the coming age. Let me now remind us, Matthew 7, 22, people will come before the Lord. Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't we, didn't we uh, cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Unbelievers can do miracles in Jesus' name, or at least in Jesus' name comes out of their mouth. We also know, though, that Satan, man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2, part of what his coming is going to be characterized by miracles, just like this. So we do know that it is possible for an unbeliever to do miracles. But my question is, is this really what the author of Hebrews is saying? Think about this for a moment. The powers or the miracles of the coming age. Just listen, miracles. Listen to miracles that Jesus did. Raising people from the dead. There we go. Healing lepers. Healing the deaf and the blind. Are we going to see any of this in heaven? What? Why not? That's right. The curse is lifted. There's not going to be any blind people. There's not going to be any dead who need to be raised. As soon as the, this age ends, and before we enter into the next age, the earth 
and the heavens will be destroyed and renewed. Our dead bodies will come to life renewed in our resurrection body. What is the power of the coming age? It is the renewal power that is the essence of eternal life. It is that which is dead or what we're only experiencing in part coming to life and experiencing it in full. It is the renewal power of God. That is the power, the miracle or miraculous or dunamis of the coming age. It's not the miracles of raising the dead and healing the sick. We're not going to see any of that in the coming age. Now, do you, do you see this? Because if, if we suppose this word dunamis means miracles here and that these nominal, belief, nominal Christians are experiencing the miracles of the coming age, then that means we are supposing that there will be miracles in heaven. And I'm going to tell you there will be no miracles in heaven because miracles counter the curse. That's what miracles are for. But the curse will be lifted. There will be no miracles in heaven. That will be the standard life. If God allows us to fly, maybe I would think today, well, that's a miracle. Well, no, it's not in heaven. That's just the way it is. Okay? My body won't, my flesh won't decay. That's a miracle. Well, no, that's just the way God made my body. It's not a miracle. Okay? That's not the miracles of, of the coming age. The miracle of the coming age is this whole concept of renewal that we will walk in moment by moment. So here's my question. In what way do we experience the renewal power of the coming age? How do we do that right now? How is that experienced right now? You have to accept Jesus as your Savior. And what happens? Then you become regenerated. Yes, you become regenerated. You become a new creation in Christ or a new creature, depending on your translation. We're renewed. As a matter of fact, Jesus in Matthew 19, 28 refers to the coming age as the renewal of all things. So the renewal power is what he is getting at here. That's the miraculous, if you would, if you want to throw the word miraculous in there. But he's not talking about raising the dead. He's not talking about healing the blind or healing the sick or the other miracles that these people who were unbelievers saying, Lord, Lord, didn't look, look, look at this. Look at all we did in your name. And he, he tells them, depart from you, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Those are not the miracles of the coming age that the author of Hebrews is referring to. Zach, you have a question? Yeah, just a quick question. Can we, can we actually imply the word taste Towards the power of the coming age, if, we're, if the whole time we're implying that that's fully experiencing, because can we say that we are fully experiencing the power of the coming age right now? Okay, L- let me put it this way: <clears throat> to uh, to fully experience. But what was another phrase that it was coupled with? I'm sorry, my mind's going on me. Um, to fully experience uh, the heavenly gift. To fully experience anything from God, we can only fully experience it to the measure that is given to us in this age, okay? All right? We have to admit that everything that we have in Christ right now is, and we experience it in part. And that's what you're getting at, okay? But we can, to the measure that it is given to us in this age, that measure 
That's the measure to which we can fully experience it. Okay? And, and I think that's fair in how we would treat all three of these phrases that uses the word taste. Fully experience to the extent that it's given in this age. To fully experience eternal life. Well, well technically we don't fully experience eternal life in this age. We will fully experience it then. So I understand what you're getting at. And so to do fairness with all, how it's used in all three of these phrases, it's fully experienced to the extent that we, that we can in this age. Okay? So that renewal power to the extent that we can fully experience it in this age, that's, that's what's going on here. Okay? Question? So what about John 14 where he talks, like where Jesus tells us that we'll do greater works than he does? So like then, like, did you Okay, I'll let, let, tell you what. That, that's going to send me down a rabbit trail. I, I don't want to go down there. I'm sorry. It, it will. So you can answer that question after class, but I'm, I'm afraid that's going to pull me in a, a different direction. Okay? I'm not saying it's not a valid question, but um, but I, I have a feeling I'm gonna, it, it's going to pull me off course there. Okay? All right. Um, Let's move on now. We've gone through these five things, and I'm going to contend that all five of them, according to how the author of Hebrews uses these phrases and words, he must mean a regenerated believer, and he cannot mean and does not mean a nominal Christian. Okay? So let's move on to number three. It says, crucifying again to themselves the Son of God. So to themselves, they're crucifying the Son of God, but publicly, they are making a a spectacle of him or putting him to open shame or public disgrace. So that's, that's the contrast in this verse here. To ourselves or to themselves, they're crucifying Jesus again, and to the public, they're, they're making a sham of the name of Jesus by how they're living. Okay, so let's treat this idea of crucifying again to themselves the Son of God. They are, that means that they once crucified Jesus, stopped crucifying him, and they're crucifying him how? Again. Do you understand the significance of this word again? Just like being brought back to repentance. It's something that they had experienced before. Here's my question to you. Does a nominal Christian, if he's referring to a nominal Christian here, does a nominal Christian ever stop crucifying Jesus by their lifestyle? No. If they stopped crucifying Jesus, then we would have to say there's a heart change. That would make them no longer a nominal Christian. Okay. But they can, but nominal Christians, unbelievers, unregenerated people constantly crucify Jesus. Whether we put the label of nominal Christian on them, whether they call themselves a Christian but truly aren't, they continue to rebel against God. They're still lost in their sin and they daily crucify Jesus. Now, do you see this? There's no again. That means you did it once, you stopped doing it. And you're doing it again. And that's not nominal Christians constantly, daily, crucify the Son of God by refusing to surrender to his lordship. If they surrendered to his lordship in order to not crucify him, guess what? They're born again. So do you see? 
I'm sorry. We're supposed to do the opposite. We're supposed to be crucified daily. True. Mm -hmm. But here, these people are crucifying Jesus all over again. All over again. That means at one time they had to have stopped. But a nominal Christian cannot stop. He does it every day. So if he was referring to nominal Christians, he would be saying, you continue to crucify the Lord. But it doesn't say that. You crucify again. Um, in verses 7 and 8, it says, but the land that produces thorns and thistles is useless and concludes, in the end it will be burned. I think there is um, a very definitive destruction that's being spoken of here. You're not going to get off lightly. The land that does not produce fruit will be burned. Now, can I say this? He is not saying that the, it never produced land. He's just saying that the land, that if it stops producing fruit and all it's producing is thorns and thistles, that land is going to get burned. It says nothing about what it did 10 years ago. It's talking about right now. You're producing thorns and thistles. There's no fruit you will be burned. This is the case for the apostate. Now, we're going to really get into what it means to apostatize in chapter 10. And so I want to um, move there in just a second. But before I do, I want to conclude with this. There is this resounding confidence that the author has about his audience. He says, even though I speak this way to you, I, I have confidence that this will not be your case, that this is not your case, that even though you are heading down this pathway to apostasy, this pathway that's lined with sin, just like the Israelites did in the wilderness, they eventually turned away, their hearts were hardened, and they did not enter the promised land. But I have more confidence... But I have more confidence in you that that is not the case here. That is not saying... Wow, he's really getting into it. That is not saying that this is never going to happen to them. Okay? Is, is he okay? Okay, maybe an attitude. Okay. It's an attitude that he had. All right, I feel better. Um, so let me just say this. This is not a promise that they will not apostatize. If it were, why would he be bringing it up? Okay, I realize that there are some like Hewitt and Westcott who say that this is, an, I'm sorry to even bring this up, but an impossible hypothetical situation. In other words... If it were possible for a Christian to apostatize, but it's not, this is what would happen. He wouldn't even be able to be brought back to repentance. But since we all know that, that God forgives people and that everyone has a chance to repent, and no matter how bad or whatever your lifestyle is, you can always repent, of course God will forgive your sin. So this can't happen to a Christian. I'm sorry, that was a really long sentence, wasn't it? it he, we, don't, he, he, we see the word if... But where's the word could? If a Christian could apostatize, but he can't, you see, we don't, we don't, 
that's not the tenor or the tone of this passage at all. So I'm going to move on. I'm going to, I'm going to say this is the author expressing confidence as a father in the faith to these children. I'm confident, though, that you will not continue down this road. You will heed my warning and you will turn back to the Lord. That's his confidence. Chapter 10. Forgive me, I am going to try and go through this chapter a little bit quicker than I intended because I, I want to conclude with a few other verses. So, um, I am going to assume that you read this chapter. That you read verses 26 through 39. Um, that if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. And he goes on to say in verse 29, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has three things? Number one, trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. Those three things help define for us what it means to deliberately keep on sinning. In other words, continuous action. Living a deliberately sinful lifestyle. There's no evidence of repentance. There is a willful choosing to sin. And there is, there is no repentance here. This is his point. And he is describing this idea, if we have any questions. Well, what does he mean by deliberately keep on sinning? He defines it for us here in verse 29. He is saying that they trample the Son of God underfoot, they treat as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and they insult the Spirit of grace. Now we're going to come back and look at that second one because I think it holds a lot of, uh, a lot of meat that we're going to need to chew on for a bit. But let's first look at this, this word here. If we deliberately keep on sinning, are we going to hold the position that he is speaking to a group of people and some of them are Christians and some of them are not Christians. So when he says we, if we, and the apostle is identifying himself with his audience, we, what or who does he mean by this word we? Now I'm not saying that every single Hebrew who read this letter or heard it being read was a Christian. I'm not saying that. So his audience certainly will have nominal Christians in it. I don't know of any church that, well, there may be some churches that don't have nominal Christians. I hope our church doesn't have nominal Christians. But we have to recognize that there may be some. But when he uses this word we, is he purposefully including nominal Christians in this we, or is he purposefully excluding them? Now, just on verse 26, we don't know. So we have to look at the context, and he tells us who his audience is. He tells us who he is referring to by this word we. And in verse 10, he says, we have been made holy. Can an unregenerated person be made unholy? No, he is purposefully, at this point, excluding nominal Christians. So when he gets to verse 26, 
The word we does not include nominal Christians. The word we is specifically referring to those who have been made holy. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God. Since we have confidence, let us draw near to God. It is the blood of Jesus that gives us this confidence. Who is that blood shed for? Whose sins have been forgiven by it? Only those who are true, genuine believers in Jesus. If you were to continue to read through this paragraph, starting in verse 19, it becomes abundantly clear that he does not have nominal Christians in view at all. So he must mean, when he says we in verse 26, we are those who have been made holy, who have been washed by the blood of Jesus, who enter the most holy place in heaven, spiritually, with great confidence. And it continues on, we, we, us. And he is not referring to nominal Christians, but only true believers. Number two, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Here's what we find. This phrase is used several times in the New Testament. Every single time it refers to a true believer. 1 Timothy 2.4, come to a knowledge of the truth. This is a saving knowledge of the truth. And it does not mean any anything else. Now, you can look this verse up tonight, try and get it in its broader context. I just don't have time to address that broader context. And I think you'll agree. He's, he's talking about those who come to a saving knowledge of the truth, not just an intellectual knowledge. This word knowledge is the word epignosis, or a full understanding, or a full knowledge. All right? Um, that's the way it's used in Hebrews. That's the way it's used in all of these verses. Epignosis. First Timothy 4.3. Those who know the truth. Epignosco, the, the verb form. Second Timothy 3, uh, 2.25. Leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Again, the context is true knowledge, saving knowledge. It's not artificial, it's not superficial, it's not just mental, it includes the heart, it's transformative. That type of knowledge, epignosis. 2 Timothy 3, 7, never able to acknowledge the truth. That is a verb, it's actually a noun form in the Greek, come to a knowledge of the truth. That again is a saving knowledge of the truth. Titus 1, 1, an apostle for the knowledge of the truth. Is the Apostle Paul, is he an apostle for any type of knowledge of the truth that's superficial, artificial, non-transformative, does not regenerate? No, it's, it's, it's an encounter and an experience with the truth of the gospel that truly transforms. It is a saving knowledge of the truth. Okay? Um, this word receive, as it's used in Hebrews, uh, and it's used that way several times. It never means to be given something, but not, not use it. So if we receive the knowledge of the truth, can we understand it to mean just an intellectual grasp, but never use it, never act on it, not allow it to transform us? That's not how the word you, uh, receive is used in this book. It's always used to mean possess it, use it, be impacted by it, it means to take unto oneself and possess. Okay? So receive, we have received 
the knowledge of the truth. My contention is this is a believer that he is describing and actually cannot be a nominal Christian. Okay? Number three, there's no sacrifice for sins left. Um, Not an easy passage to understand. Verse 18, forgive me if, if I don't treat this in depth. I'm looking at my time here. But in verse 18... Uh, He uses very similar Greek words with one or two extra words thrown in there. And it means where sins have been forgiven, in verse 18, where sins have been forgiven, there's no more sacrifice for sins left to be made. There's no need for it. The sins are forgiven. You're not going to need to sacrifice Jesus again. Even so, those who once have embraced Christ and followed after him and they totally abandon him, crucify Jesus again, trample him underfoot, spit upon the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and insult the spirit of grace. Such a person has not only followed down this pathway to apostasy that's characterized by a sinful lifestyle, they have now stepped into this belief system that is animosity towards Christ. And that's how I understand those three characteristics. I'm going to look at only one, but all three of those characteristics demonstrate an animosity towards Jesus. The Jesus that they once believed in, truly believed in, were transformed by. As a result, there is no more sacrifice for sins. Jesus is not going to die on the cross again for you. You've gone back to your wallowing in the mire. You have returned to your vomit. And actually, as chapter 6 says, they, they are never renewed. They're never brought back to repentance. There is, the work of the Spirit is done in their life. They have so opposed Him. They experienced, fully experienced Him before. But now all hope is gone. That is a tragic moment. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Don't go down this road. The end is destruction that you can never be rescued from. That's the danger. When a person begins to go back into a sinful lifestyle, and you know some people like that, they are on this road, and it is a dangerous road. Because the scary part is, you never know when you're going to cross that line, and your heart is engulfed in sin, and it's hardened again, and there is now an animosity towards Christ, a coldness and indifference that can never be broken. Because Christ, he's not going to die on the cross again. There is no more sacrifice for sins. Question, can, can you hold the question until, is it possible to hold it until the end? Sure. Yeah, if you could, only because I am, I am running out of time here and, and I've, I have to finish up here. Um, the, write, write the question down. The blood of the covenant that sanctified him. Is it possible for a nominal Christian to be sanctified by the blood of the covenant? You can look at 1 Corinthians 7.14 and an unbeliever is said to be sanctified. I'm not pulling your leg. That's what 1 Corinthians 7.14 says. Married to a believer, the believer sanctifies, the presence of the believer sanctifies the unbeliever. Now, I'm not going to get into all what that means, But can I say this? That is absolutely not what he's talking about here. Who's the sanctifier in 1 Corinthians 7.14? Or who's the one that as a result 
of their presence sanctifies them. It's the spouse that believes. It actually says they are sanctified by the believer. But here it says they are sanctified by the blood of the covenant. What vastly, vastly different thing. Please do not, and I don't know anyone who does this, but please do not understand 1 Corinthians 7.14, meaning that the unbeliever is now regenerated because of the presence of a believing spouse. Nowhere does scripture teach that. So we know off, right off the bat that is not what it means, and there actually is a good explanation for it, but another topic, another time. But that is not what he, the book, author of Hebrews is, is referring to or teaching here. This is the blood of the covenant that once sanctified him, that didn't just set the nominal Christian apart, or however you're going to slice and dice this word sanctified. No, this is made holy. This is, he, he refers to this earlier in the chapter. Again, if we want to understand what he means by this, let's take the context. He's already told us what it means. He's already told us about what the blood of the covenant, that of Jesus Christ has done in verse 10. And by that will, the will of the Father, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It is that blood of Jesus that has sanctified us. There is no scripture in the New Testament that even suggests that an unregenerated person has been sanctified by the blood of Jesus and remains unregenerated. When the blood of Jesus sanctifies us, it is because of one thing. Well, two things, I suppose. We have believed and the grace of God is poured out upon them. That person is rescued from their sin. So let me just reiterate. An unregenerated or a nominal Christian cannot be sanctified by the blood of the covenant and remain unregenerated. Because once they are sanctified, they are saved, they are rescued, and they are set apart. They are no longer nominal Christians. So this must refer to a true believing Christian. Number five, the Lord will judge his people. Let me just simply say this. We've done a study on it when we went through Israel in the church that there's nowhere in the New Testament that says that the people of God are any, is anyone other than true believers. God's people are his chosen people. God's people is not Israel anymore. Let me just say that one more time. God's people is no longer Israel anymore. There's no New Testament passage in Scripture that would back, it, would back, back up the thought that Israel is still the people of God. Nowhere. I mean, it's just not there. The, this, the scriptures clearly teach that the people of God are and only are those who truly believe in Jesus have been rescued from their sin and saved. So if he says that if he's talking about his people and he gives two Old Testament quotes, then he's talking about judging his people. He's not talking about judging nominal Christians. If the context here is describing a nominal Christian who's going to undergo this judgment, then he could not use his people. The Lord judges his people. That refers and only refers to true believers. Okay? So the judgment that is coming is upon the true believer that lives this deliberate lifestyle of sin who tramples under the foot, underfoot the Son of God, who treats the blood of the covenant that sanctified him as an unholy thing and insults 
the spirit of grace. For that person who is a true believer, he says God will judge them. Now, again, um, this is a challenge to us that if we are heading down this pathway to apostasy that's characterized by sin, we need to repent. This is a dangerous path. We must repent. And God is eager to pour out his grace if we so choose to do that. Lastly, my righteous one, if he shrinks back. Again, he is simply saying here when he says, but, and that word but is the Greek word debt. It can be translated and, and many times it's not even translated at all. It's a very weak conjunction. So he's, it's, it's bridging these two thoughts, the quote and what he says, We're, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. And it's true, they are. He's not aware of any that is apostatized. Again, he's expressing, I think, his confidence that you're going to take heed of this warning and that you will possess your confidence that you held it first and you will not be swayed from that. Stay the course. All right. Um, I, I do want us to look at Romans 11, if we could. And I, I think as we look at Romans 11, we're going to understand a little bit better this sense of inconsistency within the eternal secure's possession. He is speaking, obviously, to the people at Rome, and he says in verse 20, Romans 11, verse 20, granted, but they were broken off, referring to the Jews that rejected Jesus, did not believe in him. They were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to who? To you, kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So who is the you? Is he referring to this group of people, some of which are Christians and some of which are nominal Christians? I would have to say that some of his letters, like the book of James, is addressed that way, especially when you get to chapter 5. But so I'm not going to say that no letters do this, but right here at this point, he is very clear to us as his readers who he means by you. He means those who stand by faith. I just read that verse 20 and you stand by faith. Is he now if there are nominal Christians in Rome that hear this letter, is he speaking to them right now? No, he is not. Who's he speaking to those who stand in faith? So you who stand in faith, um, he is talking to those who have been grafted into the vine. They've been grafted into the vine and, sorry, I'm trying to find my notes on this. There we go. 
And so not only do they stand by faith, not only are they grafted into the, excuse me, I said vine, the olive tree, but they are presently in God's kindness as opposed to God's sternness. If you're in God's sternness, where are you? Are you a believer? Are you a... Look at, look at the context. Which, who are those who are in God's sternness or experience his sternness? I'm sorry. Those who rebel. Those who have not been grafted into the vine. They will be punished. There is destruction awaiting them. But he says, provide, he, he speaks to, he says, but kindness to you. He's not referring to nominal Christians here. He's referring to true, genuine Christians. Okay, so he, he cannot be referring to nominal Christians at this point. The challenge then is you will experience this kindness of God as long um, as long as you are not cut off. Other, he, he says, uh, he, he tells them to continue in this kindness or they will be cut off. Now, the position that is held by the eternal securist is that this, the, he is speaking to genuine Christians and these genuine Christians cannot fall away because they're eternally secure. They truly have believed in Jesus. They cannot fall away. And so here is my question. Why does he tell them to be afraid? Do you see that in verse 20? Why does he tell them to be afraid? Can I ask you, what is the very essence and purpose of the doctrine of eternal security? Does anybody know? Isn't it to quiet our hearts and give us peace and a sense of security that we not be afraid? So then why does he tell them to be afraid? Do you not see that as an inconsistency? So what we have here is a command, and and this is the way I, I, I have heard it taught, that these people, they are eternally secure. Those who truly believe in Jesus will remain secure and they will not fall away and they will stay in the kindness of God. But nevertheless, on man's end of things, they need to still realize that they need to persevere or they will fall away. Can I summarize this? And, and, and I hope I'm not being unfair in characterizing this. In essence, this is the eternal securist view. Live like an Arminian, believe like a Calvinist. Is that not fair? Live like an Arminian, believe like a Calvinist. This would explain the challenge, be afraid. You should be afraid, but why should I be afraid of the impossible? See, I believe that I can't fall away, but I need to live in a way in which I am afraid. And so I I don't want to sin. Why? Because I am afraid that I could be cut off. But you can't be cut off. You're eternally secure. Let, let me just give you an illustration to kind of sum up, sum this up. I want you to imagine that you are on a 20-foot wide path. It is heading towards this incredibly awesome, beautiful, celestial city on a mountaintop that looks gorgeous, and you can hardly wait to get there. The pathway has slick-as-glass walls that rise a mile high. They're unscalable. 
On the top is another sheet of glass, of course you can see through, so that if you were to able to climb to the top, you still wouldn't be able to because it seals it off. Now, do you have that picture in mind? These are unscalable walls. These walls, and I tell you, these walls will protect you and ensure that you will reach the city. But do not climb those unscalable walls or you will plummet to your death. How many of you are afraid to try and climb those walls? Okay, let me ask you this again. You cannot climb those walls. They're unscalable. And if, and if you climb to the top, you'll plummet to your death. Are you even afraid of climbing the walls that are unscalable and that you can't climb and that you can never, therefore, plummet to your death? No. No. You're not afraid. Yeah. So why am I telling you don't, don't climb those walls knowing that you can't climb those walls? Why should I tell you don't climb those walls because if you reach the top of those unscalable walls, you'll plummet to your death. You, but you can't climb the walls. So why am I telling you not to climb them if you can't? Could it be like a parent telling a child, like, oh, like, don't be scared of the monster, like, or whatever, like, when there's not really a monster in the room, but they're just telling a child that because, like, the child is not sure enough to understand. Okay, so let's just follow that reasoning, then, therefore, we are not mature enough to understand that we're eternally secure. So God has to tell us, don't be afraid. Or God has to tell us to be afraid. All right? So, I, again, I, I'm just seeing an inconsistency here. And, and, and lastly, I just want to conclude with this powerful, powerful verse, Jude, the very last two verses in Jude. Thank you for uh, your patience as we go through. This is a lot of scripture and study that we're, we're going through here tonight. I realize that. I love this passage. It says, to him, verse 24, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Isn't that an awesome passage of scripture? To him who is able to keep you from falling. I learned it to keep you from apostatizing, to keep you from falling away. But that's not how this word is used in the New Testament, to keep you from falling away. To keep you from falling means to keep you from sinning. Not falling away and apostatizing. To him who is able to keep you from sinning. God is able to keep you from sinning. He's able to do that. By faith, then, we are on this venture. And the goal is that he is able to present us blameless before him and with great joy. No fault. The, the, the joy that's ours is that because of what Christ has done... We will be blameless. We will be faultless before him. The blood of Jesus has washed away every sin. We have persevered to the end. We will be saved. We will stand before him faultless. It is to this God who has sufficient power to keep us from stumbling 
to keep us from sinning and to present us before him with great joy. That is the God that we serve. He is fully capable. He is the one who keeps us. 1 Peter 1.5 We started it out by, by reading this passage and I'm going to conclude with it. We are kept by the power of God through faith. You are kept by the power of God through faith. He will never cast you out when you believe in Him. Never ever. But if we are trekking down the the pathway to apostasy, then the challenge is make sure that we do not turn away from God. Let me close in prayer. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that tonight that you would encourage our hearts and challenge us, that we would seek after you, that we would love you with all of our hearts, that we would in, in no way turn away from you, that you would capture our hearts again, God. That our hearts, we would not allow sin to harden our hearts again. And Father, I ask that we would run after you, the God who is able to keep us from falling, to present us without fault and with great joy in your presence. In Jesus' name.